Our scripture for today is John 19, 16 through 30. So they took Jesus and he went out bearing his own cross to the place called the place of a skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him and with him two others, one on either side and Jesus between them. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this inscription, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and it was written in Aramaic, in Latin, and in Greek. So the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, Do not write the King of the Jews, but rather, this man said, I am King of the Jews. Pilate answered, What I have written, I have written. When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them into four parts, one part for each soldier, also his tunic. But the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. So they said to one another, Let us not tear it, but cast lots for it to see whose it shall be. This was to fulfill the scripture, which says... And they divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. So the soldiers did these things, but standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Jody. Well, I'm really excited to be able to be here. It's been uh, over a month since I've, I've preached and uh, grateful just as uh, people came from multiple states to, to preach and uh, love on us as a church and love on my family as, as Patty is uh, going through a lot of chronic pain and please keep praying for her and for us. And uh, it's been awesome to see the church come around us and um, and I'm, I'm super glad to, to be here. I'm super glad to be stepping into this, even though it's a heavy topic, but it is the topic. And uh, before we dive into this real quick, I wanted to share that I reached out to a buddy of mine that I went to seminary with. And seminary is just called graduate school for biblical things, basically. So it sounds fancier than it is, but it's basically just graduate school. Uh, but it's learning Greek and Hebrew and all that stuff. And I was single when I went there for, for the first few years. And I lived in the single men's dorm. And on the same floor as me, there were a lot of super interesting characters. But one of the guys was a guy that used to be on the water polo, the Olympic water polo team for Poland. And uh, so he's a a wiry kind of tough guy, but super funny and and just really enjoyed him. And so I reached out to him a couple weeks ago and he's in Poland as a pastor and in a smaller town. And I was just like, hey, um, what's, what's going on with, with, uh, are you guys doing anything? You know, I heard like over 2 million Ukrainians are in the country. And he said, yeah, we actually have 50 Ukrainians 
in our church right now that we're caring for. And he said, um, he, he basically shared some things that, um, and he wasn't like manipulating me or anything. He's just being totally genuine. He was like, hey, if we had money to do this, this, and this, we could, we could have 30 more in our church. And it was connected to their furnace and some other things. I looked up the high in Warsaw today is like 39. So it's, it's colder even than, than here. And, um, and so, so just wanted to share like part of our giving as a body is to say like, like we've already determined like for every hundred dollars that comes in the door, $10 will go somewhere for something that Jesus is doing somewhere else. And so we actually were able to send him a check for $3,500 for everything that he asked, basically to be able to have 30 extra Ukrainian refugees staying at their, at their church. So, so I just, I'm super excited. Like I contacted our financial people and been like, hey, here's what he said. Look into it, crunch the numbers. Can we do this? And they were like, yeah, we actually, we, we got that. Like we can, we can do that. And so, uh, so anyway, I was just excited for that and, uh, and be praying for them and, and for their church. Robert is his name, the pastor. Um, but we're in verse 16 of John 19, and we have Bibles over here that if you don't have a Bible, feel free to take it, but we'll have the verses on the screen too. Um, verse 16 of John 19 says this, so he, Pilate, delivered him, Jesus, over to them to be crucified. So they took Jesus, and he went out bearing his own cross to the place called the place of a skull, which Aramaic is called Golgotha. Verse 18, there they crucified him. And with him, two others, one on either side and Jesus between them. Look at verse 18 there. The first four words of verse 18, there they crucified him. Those four words should mess with us. When we read those, those words, they should, it should bother us. Like, it shouldn't sit right with us to see those four words. Those, are, those, are, those can't be words that we hear and just move on. Like, okay, what else? They're disturbing words, and they, they should disturb us. And what's really, I think, fascinating is John is a man... Um, my wife accuses me of this a lot. She's like, wow, you really lengthened that story. You know, like you could have shared that in a minute and you took 10, you know, like, like you're, you're really good at being able to go the long way. And I think John is that way too. So where we've been in the book of John, that in probably to walk from where they had the last supper to the Garden of Gethsemane. I've actually walked that, and it's like, it's actually downhill. It's, it's uphill the other way, and it's maybe like a 30 to 40 minute walk maximum. But these are people, like for me, who drives everywhere. These are people who walked everywhere, and so it probably was an easier walk for them to get there. And John spent chapters writing about everything that happened from there to there. And John here Earth's most important event is an event that happened that took place over six hours from 9 a.m. to 3 p.m. Jesus is on the cross for six hours, and John is there for the entirety of it. And when you 
think about what he saw, when you think about what he heard, when you think about what he smelled, and this is a man who was able to communicate with great detail a lot of Jesus' miracles, that he observed the horror of his Savior nailed to a wooden cross. He observed the horror of the sight of his best friend unjustly, illegally, naked, up on that cross, publicly humiliated, the horror of the smell of three men dying. And I could just go on and on using like my imagination. But John didn't need to use his imagination. He was present for all six hours. And what John writes to communicate those six hours is there they crucified him. That's how John communicates it. Instead of using chapters, he uses four words. And you can almost feel the horror as John writes so briefly. It's too disturbing, I think, for John to relive it. And John is writing this decades after it happened. And I think for John, it is too disturbing too much of a horror to say anything than what he said, which is there they crucified him. And then John doesn't describe what's happening on the cross. He draws our attention to some things around the cross. And the first thing he draws our attention to is verse 19. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. Pilate with his own hands, he's the governor, wrote an inscription, put it on the cross, and it read, Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this inscription for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city. It was on like, like I-35. You know, it was, it was a thoroughfare. And so it was written in all the trade languages of the region. It was written in Aramaic, in Latin and in Greek. It wasn't written in Hebrew. It was written in Aramaic, Latin, and Greek, which everyone would be able to speak. Verse 21, So the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, Do not write the king of the Jews, but rather this man said, I am the king of the Jews. Pilate answered, What I've written, I've written. So there's a lot here, but there are prophecies, and we preach through the book of Daniel um, during... COVID lockdown and stuff, we went through the book of Daniel. And in the book of Daniel, there are these crystal clear prophecies written hundreds of years before Jesus saying that when the Messiah comes, when the Savior comes, he will be a whole planet Savior. He will be an entire planet. He will be the person everyone has been yearning for, even those who didn't know that's who they were yearning for. He will be a whole planet savior. But as many other prophecies said, and these in Daniel 2 will point to, is that he comes from the lineage of Israel's greatest king, David. So he will come from the lineage of, of the greatest king of Israel, David. But then David says, the one who's coming after me, he's my Lord. And so it's like, whoa, you're the greatest king. 
and you're going to call him Lord who's coming after you? This must be the king of kings. And Herod, the king at the time that Jesus was born, knew these prophecies. And Herod was like, if there's going to be a king of kings, it's going to be me. If there's going to be a king reigning forever, it's going to be me. So Herod is actually trying to kill, and he kills everybody, every young boy in Bethlehem he has killed because he wants to make sure that that king will never rise up. And he will be the king that will rise up. And uh, thankfully, you know, God led him out of Bethlehem before all of that happened. Um, and then the religious leaders of the day, they don't want Jesus to be the king because they like what they've got going on. And they want to be their own king. So they're like, we don't want him to be our king. The Roman leaders would see that as insurrection. And the Roman leaders don't want to acknowledge Jesus as king because that would mean that the emperor of Rome isn't the, the, the top dog. So like everybody who is kind of involved here is like, we don't want him, he, he's not king. But then Pilate writes, this is the king of the Jews. And Pilate writes of Jesus of Nazareth, king of the Jews. And when there's pushback, he says, I've written what I've written. So Pilate even is saying like, this is, I believe this is who he says he is. I believe that this is the one who is the king. And you guys should be worshiping him and not killing him. And John like knows the irony of what Pilate wrote, but Pilate doesn't have the courage. Pilate knows this would change my entire identity. I am the governor of this province. It would change my entire identity if I truly went all in with what I just wrote and I believe what I wrote. But he was too much of a coward to do anything besides that. Then John doesn't wax eloquent there, John just directs us to another place. John now directs us to verse 23. When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them into four parts, one part for each soldier, also his tunic. But the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. So they said to one another, let us not tear it, but cast lots for it to see whose this should be. This was to fulfill the scripture which says, they divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. So the soldiers did these things. I, I think like the, when we watch movies about Jesus on the cross, I think even when I think about Jesus on the cross, there's always like, sometimes he's wearing clothing, sometimes he's like just got like shorts on. But other things are going to happen on the cross after this. So... And if you think about Jesus being clothed on the cross, his clothing is ruined. I think if you even think of Jesus having clothing on while he's being flogged, his clothing is ruined. It's, it's not just saturated, but it's also probably just become totally ruined. And these guys are doing this while Jesus... So it says they crucified Jesus, meaning like 
they did the flogging. They got Jesus up on the cross. Uh, then during those six hours, they're now wheeling and dealing for his clothing. And John sees this and also recognizing like, like Jesus is naked on the cross. That is like hard for me to think about. And it just feels like too grotesque to go there. But he is, he is buck naked on the cross because the Romans want him to have maximum shame. Maximum shame. No covering. And John writes four words. There they crucified him. But then he's writing about how they're, they're like stealing his clothes. And the crazy thing is that Jesus is on the cross to clothe us. That's the crazy thing, is that you have these, these, these soldiers who have gone through basic training and all this stuff acting like animals and are probably drunk to, to cope with the type of things that they did and all these things. And then you have a sane man on the cross and he is on the cross because, and I, I need to hear this, you need to hear this, is that Jesus is clothing us on the cross. He is doing, he, he is giving us his righteousness so that we with naked souls can be clothed with him and his works and his righteousness. Putting off the old man in our old sinful self and putting on Christ and all of his work on our behalf. Our shame can be covered. The nakedness of our soul can be clothed by his righteousness. Uh, just one, one section of scripture here to, to point us in this direction. Romans 13, 13 through 14 says, Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy. Verse 14, But put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. And that, that imagery is an imagery of like, like we, we take off, we, we take off our, all of our fleshly sinful selves and we, we put on Christ and all that he has accomplished on our behalf. And the Roman soldiers take Jesus' clothing, trying to give him shame, all the while missing the point that Jesus is on the cross wanting to take our shame. Working to take their shame. And, and I think at least one of them, we know like after everything happens here, says like surely this is the Son of God. So I think likely some of these, these men even that were part of this ended up giving their lives to Jesus. And that's the type of Savior he is that would say, you're forgiven. I was doing all that for you too. Um, John directs us from the madness of the soldiers to then John directs us to the sanity of verse 25. But standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. So three Marys 
which if you think that's weird, like we've got multiple, we have two Grace Kimberleys in the church, you know, like it's, it's common to have, to have people with similar names in a community. Mary was that, was that way. We have archaeological evidence that Mary was a super common name during that time. And so here we have, we have standing by the cross of Jesus where his mother, Mary, his mother's sister, known as Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. Magdalene is not her last name. It means she's from Magdala, which is up north by the Sea of Galilee. Verse 26, when Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, woman, behold your son, pointing to John, he's writing this. Then he said to the disciple, behold your mother, and from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. So Jesus is consciously on the cross. He's consciously paying for every human sin, past, present, and future. Uh, like I think on the cross, Jesus felt every sin of mine consciously. It wasn't just like this like tub of water that's just like indecipherably poured on somebody. Like every, from 1978, if I was sinning in 1978 until 2000, whatever, however long the Lord has me here, like he consciously took on the penalty of that sin feeling every one of them, of mine, of yours. And while he's doing, and even like 2 Corinthians 5, uh, Scripture says of this moment, he who knew no sin became sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. So when you think of the most grotesque sins that you've ever committed, ever been committed against you, or you've ever heard of, like Jesus actually was like fully identifying and taking on that sin to really pay for us. And while he's doing such cosmic things, he is also concerned about his mom. And he, Jesus is the only one on planet earth who knows the future. And he, I don't think it's a coincidence that he chooses the only disciple that is going to die of natural causes. He chooses the only disciple that will not be martyred. And he says, that's going to be your son from now on. And he's going to take care of you. Death will temporarily separate Jesus from all who he's leaving behind. Jesus will be at home. He will reign and rule from heaven, sending the Holy Spirit to do his thing. He will be home. We will be far from home. Mary will be far from home, and he chooses John to take care of his mom for the rest of her life. Then John directs us to verse 28. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the scripture, I thirst a jar full of sour wine. You can make a case that he's been drinking sour wine uh, by becoming sin for us. And so he very um, literally and I think metaphorically, a jar full of sour wine stood there. So they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said three words, it is finished. He actually just said one word, to telestai was the, was the one word he said on the cross that's translated in English, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. It is finished. 
And uh, I think we'll, we'll have this conversation in community groups this week. If you aren't uh, in a community group, this would be a great week to, to visit one. Um, but also, life goes fast. It's easy to get distracted. It's easy to walk out of here and forget everything that maybe even the Lord impressed on your heart. Um, I would encourage all of us to try to have at least like an hour of solitude, even if that means like you take the super slow way home or something, and just... Just meditate on, chew on, what did Jesus mean when he said, it is finished? What does that mean for me when he says, it is finished? Because we often live lives that scream, it's not finished. I need to impress God. I need to, I need to win his attention. There's a lot of people out there, and I need to win his attention. Or maybe you could be the other way and say, there's a lot of people out there. There's no way he knows me. There's no way he cares to know me. Or maybe he doesn't even like me because he knows me. And so it's not finished. Um, or if it is finished, it's finished in a bad way. Um, maybe we're like, God, give me the time to work this out. God, would you give me um, the time to show you that I can impress you? Uh, I, or what, what I thought for so long was, I need to clean myself up. I need to, I need to stop sinning, and I need to, to keep not sinning. And, and I'll like clean myself up in a way that he's like, finally, I accept you. And, and I didn't feel like it was finished. And, uh, you know, would you just let me earn my way to you? And all of that is just garbage. Total garbage. And it's a lie. It's refreshing in our, in our culture to realize something is a lie. Like that is just a lie. No one can spin it otherwise. It is a lie. And I think Satan laughs at us sometimes and wants us to live our life as if it's not finished. Just chasing our tail, running on the hamster wheel, thinking it's not finished. And then to feel shame just to feel shame that we realize we can't finish it. Like whatever our preconceived notion of like, God, you'll love me when I get here and I, I cross the finish line. When I finally do these things and cross the finish line, when I finally like get myself into a better place, I'll cross some imaginary finish line, uh, then there'll be heavenly host singing hallelujah to me or whatever it may be. But Satan heard that victorious word to Telestai. Like even Satan himself heard that word, I'm, I'm convinced. And, and, and I, I want us to hear it today. The most, most powerful word ever spoken on planet earth. It is finished. And you say, well, what's finished? Well, that could be a whole other sermon, which I'm grateful we're going to spend some time walking in this. But at the very least, the payment for every single rebellious sin against a holy God is finished. The payment is finished. The ransom, Scripture talks about the ransom to the kingdom, from the kingdom of darkness. So a ransom paid to the kingdom of darkness so that 
anyone can be transferred from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. And I know it's like, man, you're using churchy words there or whatever. Well, these are all like scripture words saying that a, a ransom did have to be paid. And Jesus on the cross is like, it's paid. Finished. Done. The satisfaction of the Father's just wrath. You know, like if, if I had, if somebody did something terrible to, to a kid of mine, and I was just like, well, I'm kind of a loving guy. So, I'm just going to be loving. You know, it, you can be a loving guy and have righteous anger towards something that needs righteous anger to change what just happened or to, to give justice to what happened, you know? So, so there are a lot of things in our culture that we should feel a righteous anger about and, and shine light in the darkness. And there was a righteous anger from God the Father towards all of the rebellion against him. He would not be a loving father if he didn't want us to follow him. And so often we do all these things away from, you know, like trying to get away from him when he's like, I'm trying to love you and I'm trying to show you how I've designed you to flourish by following me. And so all this righteous anger that the father had was, was absolutely finished, paid for on the cross by his son, who the father sent for us and the son volunteered and came. It is finished. The dawn of hope of all that is wrong, broken, disordered, maybe made right, healed, and ordered, that is finished. The, the, the way is opened. There's no fine print needed here. The greatest work done by the greatest man for the greatest good. Let me say that again. The greatest work done by the greatest man for the greatest good, Jesus declared, it's finished. The age of the church, the age of the Holy Spirit in the life of the church, which is where we're in now, the age of Jesus building his church, light shining into darkness, people giving their lives to Jesus, as Christy shared earlier, anyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. All of the victory of him saying it is finished the entire church, we are built on the foundation of Jesus saying, it is finished. Romans 13, 14 again. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desire. Because Jesus accomplished completely what needed to be accomplished on the cross, he could say, put on the Lord Jesus Christ the first time that someone does this, it's called salvation. And my, my prayer and my hope is that someone today here in this room, that today would be the day of salvation for you. And how do you do this? What does it mean to put on Christ? You simply communicate to Jesus. And you can do this out loud. And if you're like, Jesus, it's me. I'm coming to you. You would hear people crying around you. Um, or just from the inner place, just from your soul, from the center of your soul, just say to him, I give my life to you today. I believe these things are true, which I'm hearing from your word. And save me from my sins. 
I'm giving my life to you. I'm putting on you and I'm laying me beside and I want to live in you. And I would just say, would you do that right now? And I'd even ask, what's stopping you from doing that? And if you say, well, this, this, and this, I'd say, well, would you let this, this, and this just go today? Would you let those last vestiges of darkness be lit up by him today who calls himself the light of the world? Would you put on Christ today? For all of us who have put on Christ, who are putting on Christ, who have genuinely given our lives to him, would we just surrender in a fresh way to not start making our lives about putting on all sorts of other things? Putting on power, putting on money, putting on all these other things to just make our, our souls feel clothed. Would we, with no shame, because he bore our shame, but repentance is healthy. Shame is not healthy. Sorrow is healthy, because sorrow can be like, hey, I'm, I'm turning. I don't want to be that way anymore. I want to put on Christ. Forsaking all the false lives of putting on other things and simply put on Christ, make no provision of the flesh and be found in the one who said it is finished. The hope that I had, the hope that we had in first starting walking with him is that it's your presence, Jesus, it's walking with you that gives me hope, that, that rights all my wrongs, that, that you, you draw straight lines with crooked sticks. And that same is how we commune with him today. In a beautiful way that he gave us in communion, which represents a lot of what we're reading today too, is that he gave his body for us. He shed his blood for us. And so whether you have put on Christ for the first time today, or, or by God's grace, uh, he was able, he, you, know, he, you were able to walk with him sooner than today. Um, the hope that all of us have is communing with him, not becoming these professional religious people, but never being further than what we started being, which was people who needed him. And so communing with him today uh, is his design of saying, hey, together as a community, take this bread, take this juice, wine, obey your conscience there, and, um, and commune with me. It's a very tangible gift that he gave us. And so I'd encourage you just to not rush to the table, spend a few moments uh, just communing with him privately in prayer. Uh, then let's come, come down the center. We'll take the elements. Uh, we'll have, uh, I think, Norman Carmier serving communion today. And they'll, with gloves on, just give you the bread. Uh, then you can, you can take the wine or juice. Uh, then let's, we'll remain standing in our seats, or remain standing, and we'll take it together as family. So let's come to him. Let's commune with him.